Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, Jesus has done the triumphant entry. During Palm Sunday, he has cleansed the temple. He has cursed a fig tree. And now he has come into a period of three parables that he is speaking against the uh, chief priests and the elders, the religious elite who have come to him in the temple when he was teaching and said, what authority do you have? And so this parable, which is the second parable, the first was the parable of two sons. This is a parable of tenants, and the third parable is a wedding feast. This parable, the parable of the tenants, occurs in Matthew 21 in Luke 20. And Mark 12, there are very few parables which are in those three Gospels. There are no parables that exist in all four Gospels. And when it repeats like that in the various Gospels, we have the understanding that God is the author of the Bible. The Bible is a single story with multiple parts. And so when God puts a parable like this, In all three Gospels, if nothing else, it causes us to go, hmm, and look at that and ponder it. Some would say that the fact that it is repeated three times in the Bible, that that gives it a level of importance, that gives it a level of value, perhaps, than a parable of the two sons. We take all Scripture as inspired by God, but that is something to note. So we shall see what this parable says and then what perhaps value or importance it brings. So as I said, Jesus is teaching in the temple and the religious elite come to him and say, by what authority did you clean out the temple? By what authority are you saying these things? And Jesus responds by doing three parables. In this parable, it is a story that is well known or understood by his uh, listeners. It was an agrarian, it was a farming time in Jerusalem when Jesus walked the earth. And so to give a farming story is something that everybody would understand. It's possible that many in those in his Uh, audience either owned a vineyard or worked in a vineyard, they could definitely look around the Mount of Olives and see multiple vineyards around the mountain and around Jerusalem. And so there's a person who is a fairly rich man. He's a fairly rich man and he wants to increase his wealth. He wants to expand. (coughs) And so he, he buys a piece of land. He levels it. He puts a wall around it to keep thieves and animals out. He builds a wine press, digs a wine press to squish the wines, uh, grapes and make wine. He has a tower to watch over this large piece of land. 
but he does not want to work it. And so he leases it out to some tenants. Now, these tenants are not slaves. They are not uh, servants. They are not even really employees. The best way to look at this is like a McDonald's franchise or a Subway franchise where you go and you purchase a brand from somebody and then you work that brand and then out of your profits you pay the owner of McDonald's, you pay uh, the people, you, you pay things and whatever's left over is your profit. And so it doesn't say how far the owner went, whether he planted the vines, uh, but these people were allowed to work it. And the way they would work it is that they would be the farmers and they would tr uh, dress the vines and they would do the harvest. And most of the deals back then were such that there was no upfront money. The understanding was that they would not have any money, the tenants, until such time as there was a harvest. And when there was a harvest, the owner of the land would get a portion of the fruit they would turn other parts of the fruit into wine, sell it, pay the workers, and then whatever's left over would be their profit. And if they had good profit and they could put it in and perhaps expand the vineyard, then year after year they would take the harvest and they would pay the owner of the land for letting them be on the land. They would then do other things with the fruit and pocket the money. And if this worked out well, if they were good tenants, if they were skilled tenants, then everybody could get rich over year after year after year. The tenants would keep making profit. The owner of the land would keep making profit from their work. And everybody would be making profit and making money. And then if they were very good at this, it's quite possible the landowner would allow them to manage other vineyards and everybody could be making money if there was skill involved in this and if they were righteous and not wicked. There are some uh, parables, some versions that have the title of this parable, the parable of the wicked tenants because they were wicked and that's the whole point of the story. And so they do what they're supposed to be doing. The vines are planted Grapes are gathered, and the uh, landowner, who is in another country, said, ah, it's time for the payment. So he sends a debt collector servant. He just sends servants to go get the fruit, and then he will do whatever he does with it, sell it or turn it into wine. And when he goes, they said, I don't want to. We want all the money ourselves. This is doing great. We're going to... Uh, glorify ourselves, they say. And so they beat up one of the servants, one of the slaves. They kill the other one. And then it says they stoned one. Now that is a very humiliating and public way. You can't just stone somebody. You actually have to make an accusation against them. So they did some sort of setup for this person uh, accuse them of blasphemy or adultery or something of this nature and got the whole town involved in stoning this person to death. They did to death. They did this perhaps. It doesn't say their minds, but if this was done today on a CSI or something and people saw it, they would say, "Ah, 
They're sending a message. They're sending a message to everybody to not cross these tenants, a very public thing, to tell the landowner to leave them alone because this is the type of ruthless people we are. And the landowner says, well, I will send my son and they will respect my son. We don't know how logical this was at that time, but he says it anyway and it's necessary for the story. So he sends his son, and the tenants say, Aha, it's his son, and if we kill the son, we will get his inheritance. Now, nobody that I've read has said that this is proper uh, legal speak that's going on. You can't just have a, you know, be in a house, and if you kill everybody in the family, you get the house. Well, there are still you know, police and stuff. And at this point in time, there's Romans who say you can't go around killing everybody. And so that's not very logical. But they kill the son and they throw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus asks a question. He asks a question of the religious uh, elite as they have heard this story and got all the information. Now, one aspect of this story of why they would know it, if you read through Deuteronomy, Numbers, uh, Leviticus, some of the minor prophets, the Jewish people were, were seen as tenants of God's garden, tenants of all that God had given them, that, that, Jesus, that God made Jerusalem. He gave them victory over the people of the promised land, David eventually got Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the center of God's activity on earth. And the Jewish people were considered tenants or workers of God's stuff, of God's garden, of God's vineyard. And what they were supposed to do, according to the Old Testament, is they would share the glory of what they did with God, and so they would come to the temple regularly and bring offerings. They would bring sacrifices for forgiveness of sins, but they would also bring grain offerings and drink offerings and money offerings and free will offerings just to praise God for all that He's doing and blessing them. And so it's quite possible that they had this view in answering Jesus. And so, what do they say? They say, He, the landowner, will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. So they understand that something is very wrong here, that the tenants are wicked, that the tenants need to be punished, and the fact that they killed the landowner's son means that they need to be tortured, is what they're saying. When they say to a miserable death, that is a torturous death. They want them to die slowly and feel it as they are killed because of their sin. This is the judgment of the religious elite using their knowledge of the Old Testament and the various laws they have to judge these people. Jesus then responds and says, Have you ever read the Scripture? And this is a question that he knows the answer. He knows they've read the Scripture. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, if you look at how 
This was put together in the period of time. This came after the Palm Sunday triumphal entry. During the triumphal entry, the people who saw Jesus praised him and quoted scripture. They quoted Psalm 18:26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is what the people with the palm branches were saying to Jesus as he was riding into Jerusalem. And so now many hours later, Jesus, that's Psalm 118.26, Jesus quotes to them Psalm 118, 22 and 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now when he says this, when he talks about a rejected stone, and if you read Psalm 118, which is rather long, Psalm 118 is about God choosing the people of Israel. God has the whole world before him. He has nations everywhere. He has lots of kings. There are armies everywhere. God can pick and do anything he wants. According to Psalm 118, he picks Israel. And the stone that the builders rejected is Israel in this psalm. That Israel was small, even if you take the the majority of all the nations that were around Israel, they were, even in the time of David, were much larger than Israel was. Israel was always considered a small nation. It started with 70 people going into Egypt and then over 450 years growing and then leaving that and going into the promised land and getting the law. They were always considered out of place, sojourners. The word Hebrew, they are Hebrews. The word Hebrew means wanderer, one who wanders. And so the Jews always saw themselves as rejected by the world, that whatever the world is doing, whatever the world is building, the Jews even today, if you read their writings, if you talk to rabbis, I have talked to rabbis about this, the idea that even today they see themselves as rejected by the world. They see themselves as needing to protect themselves. But they are a stone that was rejected for building the world that God said, I want that stone. And God is going to take that stone, Israel, and make it a cornerstone of his place on earth. Now, many of you have heard this. There are commentaries on this. There are documentaries on Netflix about what a cornerstone is. When you are building something, and you can see this in uh, courthouses all over the state that I have looked at for cornerstones, they they will get a piece of land and they say, we are going to build a courthouse here. Now, which way do we want it facing? And how long do we want it this way? And how wide do we want it this way? And they figure all that out with an architect. Then they take one stone 
and it's called the Cornerstone, and a lot of older buildings, the Cornerstone will have a hollowed out area, and things from that time period will be put in it, kind of as a time capsule. Most of the Cornerstones have inscriptions of the builders or the purpose of this building written on it, and then they place it so that every rock butts up against it, and if this cornerstone is not facing the right direction, or if this cornerstone is not level, then the building will not be faced in the right direction. The building will not be level. Like Jesus is saying, and it was even known back in this time of the Psalms, that the first stone you place is, so it is vastly important for how the building will come out, and that is called the cornerstone, mostly because it was always a corner. And so Jesus quotes this, and they're going, yeah, that's us. That's what he's saying. That's us. But if you go forward to Acts, in the book of Acts, Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin, and Jesus knew this was going to happen. Jesus is foreshadowing with this. He is actually taking this, even though they didn't realize it. He is taking this and saying, He is the stone that you are going to reject. And He has become the cornerstone. So in Acts 4, Peter and John are talking to the Sanhedrin. And He says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, which we must be saved. And so... The apostles, as they're being challenged by the same people that crucified Jesus, they are understanding that what Jesus is saying here is that he is the stone that was rejected through crucifixion and that he has become the cornerstone of what? Of Christianity, of this new people that he is creating and his orientation and his placement is what we build on to make sure we're going in the right direction, which is why this church and many other churches put cornerstone in their name because we say we are built on and oriented by Christ. Then he says in 43, Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. So now there's no guesswork. He is talking to the religious elite, the people who felt that they were like that with God, that they you know, had God's number on speed dial, that they knew everything about God, and he is saying the kingdom of God is being taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruits. And so when we talk about fruits and we say, well, who, who is this people who is producing fruits? This people who is producing fruits is us. It is the Christian movement which has been growing and moving for 2,000 years. It is the new people 
that God is creating the new kingdom that God is creating through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is us. We are the ones who are producing the fruit that God wants. We are the tenants of God's place, of God's world, and we give Him the fruit in its due season. Now, fruit can mean a couple of different things when we look in the book of Galatians. Galatians 5, there are fruit of the Spirit. There are nine things listed. This is a list that you should at least understand, if not know, because when you look at yourself and you say, am I really moving along the way God wants? One way to examine yourself is through the fruit of the Spirit. And there's only nine of them, so you can, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. No. <laughs> love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. And so you have nine of them, and there are some of them you think, well, that's pretty general or that's pretty specific. And you should be able to look at yourself and you say, how am I doing with kindness? How am I doing with peace? How am I doing with faithfulness? Do I have in my life self-control? And if the answer is no to a lot of these things, these are things you can pray about, and these are the fruit of God's new people. Now, how do we give those to our landlord? How do we give those to God? We give those to God by realizing that if I have peace in my life, it is not my doing. It is not something that I mustered up through closing my eyes and thinking about peace. It is not something that I can just, by the force of my strength, come up with. Now, there's a lot of things out there offering peace, but if you want peace with God, peace with yourself and peace with other Christians, that has to come through the Holy Spirit. And if you're experiencing that, you look at that and you praise God for it. You praise God for putting this in your life. Many years ago, I was involved in a Bible study in San Jose, and I've told stories of that Bible study. And we were on the fruit of the Spirit, and people wanted to say what they saw in other people. And that's one thing you can do. If you, there's somebody that you trust, you can go up and say, what of the fruit of the Spirit do you see most in, your, in my life? And have them blast you with something. No, they will lovingly talk to you about it. It's what they will do. And the group decided that they saw faithfulness in me. And at that point in time, I was surprised. I never thought of myself as a faithful person, as a faithful guy. But they did. And is it anything that I did? Did I pat myself on the back? No, I praise God. I gave glory to God because while I wasn't even trying to do it, while I wasn't even trying to be that way, God said, I'm going to make you this. I am going to change you to become this. And so that is the fruit that we have, and we give it back to God by glorifying Him. We glorify Him. We praise Him. We realize that any faithfulness or peace or joy you have in your life 
is not your doing. It is the doing of God, and you always give it back to Him. Now, if you look at this passage, it ends with, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces when it falls on anyone. It will crush him. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, but if you're against Jesus, if you're shaking your fist at Jesus, if you're cursing Jesus, then his stone becomes a stone of destruction. We talk about Jesus is my rock, my anchor holds, these various songs about Jesus being the rock. That is, that is salvation, that is, that is greatness for Christians, is that we have this rock, but if you're against God, he's also a rock which will crush you. And Christianity is two sides then. If you are part of Christianity, if you are in the kingdom, it is glorious. Christ is your cornerstone. He is your rock where the anchor holds. But if you're fighting Christianity, as many out there are, either by uh, inaction or actively fighting against it, you can't fight against God. He is a rock that cannot move. Then it ends with, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. You get phrases like that and you wonder how quick they are to really listen to what Jesus is saying. They didn't perceive it. He said it directly. The kingdom of God is being taken from you. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. When it says in the Bible that somebody feared the crowds, that makes it a political decision. These are political people. They are not going to God. They are not going to the Bible. They are not going to the things that are true to find out what to do. They are taking polls and they are taking, you know, figuring out which direction the wind is blowing and figuring out what can benefit them in the future because they want the people to like them. So they have become political priests and that is very dangerous. No wonder they didn't understand Jesus because Jesus is not a political person. And so then what do we do with this? We look at the, the parable of the two sons, we look at the parable of the tenants, and we will look at the parable of the wedding feast, and we realize that what Jesus is saying to the religious elites, to the leaders, the people who stood in the Holy of Holies, the people who read the law to the people, the people who managed the various holy festivals and brought people into the presence of God and got their sins forgiven and all these rituals that are in the Old Testament. These were the people that did it. Jesus is saying that they're doing all that for their glory. And in their glory, they are not glorifying God. They are, not re they are the ones who killed God's servants. Who are the servants? The prophets. You read through the Old Testament, God is always sending prophets. Many of them have books that you can read. There are a lot more that have no books, that God would send godly people to preach to Jerusalem, to tell them to put away false gods and to begin to obey and to get the blessings and their response was to 
kill them. And they beat up many, they killed some, and they stoned several publicly. And so God says, well, I'll send my son, Jesus Christ, and they'll respect him, even though God knew what was going to happen. And their response was, if we kill Jesus, then they will become the head of their religious movement, that God will no longer bother them with anything that is going on. That is how Jesus is seeing this. That's how God sees the errant and sinful Jewish people. And Jesus, what he's saying is, God is through the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit, God is removing the call of being God's people on earth from the Jewish people and putting it on Christians. He put it on the 12, then 11 apostles, and they went out and they preached, and there was 120 in the upper room, and up to 3,000 were saved on that day in Pentecost uh, when Peter did his preaching, and God is creating at that point in time, a new people, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Where you're from, doesn't matter. What you, you know, skin color is, doesn't matter. Nothing matters except believing in Jesus Christ. And we, as part of that movement, have Jesus Christ as our cornerstone. He is the one who gives us the direction, the orientation, and tells us what to do. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I just praise you for this day. I pray that we would be just active and knowing what we need to do with you as our cornerstone. If you are orienting our direction, show us what direction that is. If you are telling us to build in a certain way, show us what that is. For we make you and call you and acknowledge that you are our cornerstone, that you are the basis of all we do, and Lord, we praise you for that. You are our steadfast rock, our anchor holds, and you are our cornerstone. Lord, we praise you for that and ask your blessing upon the remainder of the day and the meal afterwards, and we ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.